0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL.
1: How many times have you heard somebody talking about U.S. politics, and if you ask them, what is it that intrigues you so much? They will say, well, there's just always so much going on. There is intrigue. It's not just clear-cut. It's not just, well, eventually we'll have an election, and... This many people will vote for this candidate, and this many people will vote for this candidate, and then we'll count all of those up, we'll double and triple check, and we will declare a winner. That's not the way it is. And there are a number of things that can factor in, and one of them happens to be gerrymandering. Now, if we're to look at the definition of gerrymandering... It is the practice of setting boundaries of electoral districts to favor specific political interests within legislative bodies, often resulting in districts with convoluted, winding boundaries rather than compact areas. So we picture our ridings in politics. We picture you are the MP of this, or you are the MPP of this, and this is your area. Well, what if you decided... I'm going to make this area here and I'm I'm going to have it I'm going to I'm going to put it together and it's going to be Elgin Middlesex London but I'm going to run it all the way up into uh Arva just just one particular subdivision and that that's going to count in that particular riding because there's a lot of people who like the candidate who is in you know in the mix right there and they live in Arva Wouldn't it would we look at that and go, what are you talking about? Now, does it get that specific in the United States? Well, let's find out. Let's find out. Because this is one of those things that is really fascinating about U.S. politics and can have an impact on what happens when you factor gerrymandering in with the Electoral College. Joining us is Dr. Alex Kena. Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Kena, thanks so much for being here.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Gerrymandering. It's it's such a fun word to say. When you think about it in the context of the U.S. election in 2020, does it play a role? Uh,
2: Well, yes and no. So... Mainly, when we think of gerrymandering, we think of legislative races, um, certainly Congress and some of the state legislative races. But it could play a role, and that's because of the weird and convoluted way that uh, here in the United States we elect a president. So, So, normally, ideally, we use the electoral college to elect a president, and that's a whole other can of worms right there in terms of being strange and um, kind of uh, unintuitive. But sometimes if there is a delay in getting the votes by state um, to Congress, then uh, the state governments can basically decide who is going to win their state. And that's where gerrymandering could play a role.
1: Hmm, and we're looking at an election where we're not necessarily expecting this to be okay. Everyone's counted. All right, it's uh, ten o'clock at night. Let's declare it. It's not necessarily yeah. going to go. Who knows what will happen on any given election day? But there has been at least a little bit of intrigue as to you know those votes being counted and and that we could get stuck in some states for one reason or another. So right. in in this case how would how do states just decide do they the people in power there the does the does it go to the governor does it go to the senator
2: well it goes way back to the imperfect document that was created two hundred and forty some odd years ago that is the the system of government that we have now in the united states the u s constitution and um it, the Constitution imposes a timeline for delivering the Electoral College votes to Congress. So each state delivers their Electoral College votes by, I forget the exact language, but it's like the second Tuesday of December. It's, it's a very odd and specific uh, time period. It happens to be like, I think, December 8th this year, that states have to send their certified Electoral votes. Now, you look at a place like Pennsylvania, we have COVID-19. Obviously, everyone's mailing in their votes. But Pennsylvania has a law that says you can't even start counting the mail-in votes until Election Day, which is, quite frankly, pretty absurd. <laughs> but you can imagine if you have millions and millions of votes, more people are voting. It's a, it's a very high-stakes election. It could take weeks to count all those votes. And if it's a state like Pennsylvania, where they haven't finished counting the votes and certifying the votes, By December seventh, then at that point, then the state government, the legislature, can essentially choose whoever they want. Uh, They have to send something, so they could. The legislature could be in a position where they could perhaps determine who they want to give the election to. And in there, that case, that would mean that that a state that's highly gerrymandered might end up just choosing Donald Trump. Um, because they like Donald Trump.
1: We're talking with Dr. Alex Kina, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And Dr. Kina, there's one of the questions. If we're looking at something like gerrymandering, or even if we're looking at delays in counting, and eventually it just goes to the state, do you think that favors either one of the candidates?
2: It very clearly favors... The Republican candidate Um, and the reason is that uh, Democrats don't seem too good at hacking these strange rules that American institutions have Um, part of the problem is that um, people who live in cities tightly packed urban areas tend to vote for Democrats so Democrats don't have an easy time drawing these gerrymanders because in order to do so they have to snake out to the suburbs and some of the rural areas so the Republican Party tends to really benefit and they have a much easier time drawing these gerrymanders. And if you look across the state, there's like two dozen states at least that have really durable gerrymanders that essentially make it guaranteed that the Republicans are going to win. So it all over- overwhelmingly favors the Republicans. And I think the president knows this. And I think this is his game plan casting doubt. He wants to see the election results on the night. And if it shows that he's in a lead, he's just going to declare victory and hope that, you know, through the courts or whatever, he can cast doubt on the mail in ballot results and convince the states to just basically steal the election in favor of him.
1: Well, this is why the world is watching for sure. Now, if we look at the entire process, and you called the Electoral College unintuitive people are going to wonder, why hasn't this been changed in the hundreds of years that it has been used? What would you say is the reason for keeping things that aren't necessarily, I don't know, can I use the word fair, alive?
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's totally unfair. If you live in California, there's 40 million people that live in California. If you live in California, they only get 55 electoral votes. Whereas Wyoming, which is not too far away, it's the smallest state in the country. It has less than a million people. They get something like three, and it warps their representation so that, you know, something like five Wyoming, if you are in Wyoming, your vote is equal to like five Californians. And so why didn't we change it? It's Well, it's really, really hard to change the Constitution, and a lot of the smaller states that are rural— benefit because they get more influence and they don't want to change the rules. And if you actually look at why these institutions were created, well, they're obviously protecting um, moneyed interests, but along with slave owning interests as well. The Constitution was designed to protect slaveholders and wealthy businessmen, and it still kind of works that way
1: that's just mind-boggling that you just brought in the word slave owners and that's why one of the reasons why things exist the way they exist you would think come on we've again we've hundreds of years to make changes and nothing has been changed
2: i know it's 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 really crazy I, I, we're lucky that we have <laughs> that you know that uh we we did make some changes i mean some of the good changes are some of the amendments that came after the Civil War um, that guaranteed voting rights for, for black voters and freed made slavery illegal, except in the case of a crime. Um, so, yeah, there there's all sorts of problems. You can't really call our system democratic. Um, and it's kind of ironic that the U.S., for many years, we have um, positioned ourselves as this example of how to to use democracy to promote prosperity and liberty, but we are—we have these institutions that are very clearly anti-democratic.
1: Well, that's why everybody is watching, because this, as politics remains a game, is as intriguing a game, even though there are a lot of lives at stake and a lot of things at stake coming out of it, uh, this is as intriguing a game as we've seen in a while. Dr. Keena, thank you for your time. Thanks for explaining gerrymandering and uh, a whole lot more to us today.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That's Dr. Alex Kina, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at Virginia Commonwealth University. So, you know, we're going to spend some time talking about physicality and hockey. So the way that this goes If you want to look at a hockey analogy, Donald Trump just wants to tie up the puck as best he can in the corner, and tie it up so much that it's not moving, and get a whistle. And then somebody else will decide who gets the puck. That's that's kind of the way it is. And that is a strategy, and trying to declare this election, whether it's unfair or talk about mail-in ballots not being accurate or destruction of things all of this rhetoric has been there however jackson Prosco, who is a global news reporter and a washington bureau chief he just tweeted that donald trump's latest stop has seen him start talking about hillary clinton's emails for the first 11 minutes of his stop really Really, that's where we're going? But it doesn't matter what's being said today. It really doesn't. It matters the way that Americans are going to vote. And just about every single one of them already knows. So is there a silent majority for Donald Trump in the states where he needs to have that? Don't pay attention to the polls that say this many people are voting for Biden. This many people are voting for Trump. That's not the game. That's not the way it's played. There is still a big likelihood that either one of them wins. This is not as offset as those polls indicate. Talk to anybody who has brought in the electoral college and theorized about how that could play out. They'll tell you exactly that. How old were you the first time somebody asked why did the chicken cross the road? Six? Seven? Probably six. Why did the chicken cross the road? Did anybody ever answer that question right? Or the riddle or the joke, whatever it is. Anybody ever answer that right on the first try to get to the other side? Because that's the right answer. Why did you cross the road? To get to the other side. Well, why did you cross the Thames River? To continue on the new stretch of the Thames Valley Parkway to get to the other side. It is happening here in London. It was happening over the weekend. And in fact, we wanted to take some time to talk about this because work was completed Friday afternoon on two new bridges and a section of multi-use pathway that you may have been able to try out. Joining us right now is Andrew McPherson, Division Manager of Parks, Planning, and Operations at the City of London. Andrew, we can get to the other side. (laughs) You can, twice. There's two bridges. Two bridges. Okay, so let's paint the picture of where all of this is.
3: Oh, sure. Thanks, Mike, for uh, talking about this item. I I really appreciate it because it's something that a lot of Londoners love and We can get the message out there all the better. So this is a stretch of pathway uh, that has been missing uh, between Richmond Street North and Adelaide Street North. And if people use the pathway system, they've had to do kind of an awkward little detour around the seminary up in that part of town. So this solves that problem.
1: That's excellent. Okay, so how long in the making has this been? Because it's not like you just say, oh, we need to bridge this. No problem. Come back later today. Bridges are tough. So how long has this project been going?
3: Uh, exactly. They are tough. And so formally, about six years, the planning, detailed design, tendering, construction, Um, but it's been on a list for much longer than that because we've known it's been a problem. We just uh, finally got around to fixing it. It was a difficult uh, situation. You have to carry out a formal environmental assessment, get it through all those approvals. So, yeah, it was a good part of six years of my time and others to get this done.
1: Andrew McPherson joining us, Division Manager, Parks, Planning and Operations at the City of London. So what was it like to actually get to the end of that
3: six years? It was pretty exciting for me because it was flagged on a list some time ago with one of our most important projects and a whole bunch of people in waiting for it and and it was a big day on friday when we went for the final walk and cleared it off and told the guys to pull down the gates that was pretty exciting
1: any reaction from anybody who was able to
3: use it over the weekend oh yeah we've heard from a lot of people even that day as we were walking out people were basically standing at the gates wanting to get on there and, (laughs) and pretty ecstatic about it yeah so people have been waiting and and watching
1: if you look at the way that London has come along with the number of trail options that we have now, I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to use the word staggering improperly here and, and kind of exaggerate, but to me, it's, it's kind of staggering. This, this has been great to see the expansions that have gone on.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Council's been behind this for 40 plus years and it's 43 kilometers of uninterrupted pathway and, and, all three branches of the river it's like it's one of the best in the country
1: well that right there is something to behold because yeah we can stand up and say this is one of the best in the country so in terms of what we still have planned are there are there still sections planned for different spots or are we nearing kind of the end of the the trail section
3: uh well it's going to go on for a long time because this is the thames valley parkway we've got plans in place for the next 30 years to connect every neighborhood down to the thames valley parkway but uh good question because we've got one more big project to do and uh, we've started the planning on that one too so if you've gone to the west end of the city the pathway stops at the west end of springbank park at the moment and we have people out in river bend kind of stranded out there without a connection to the park yet So that's what we're working on next is a solution to that problem. And and as we go, you know, the projects get bigger, the project gets tougher. uh, They take a lot more planning processes. We're starting to talk to, you know, private landowners because out there we don't even own the land. It's provincial land on the north side of the river. So, again, a a long process, and I appreciate people's patience, but uh, we're getting there, and we've got a team working on it for planners and engineers, landscape architects, everybody who's trying to make that happen.
1: What would be the timeline if you're looking at Riverbend and and that particular project, getting it back to Springbank Park?
3: It's about the same kind of time period. By the time we get through uh, uh, discussions with the landowners, uh, formal environmental assessments, start the detailed design to attend or do construction, it could be you know, five years from now before we're cutting that ribbon. We'd like to do it sooner, and we're pushing for that, but there are just so many steps in the process. Um, and we want to do it right. Uh, there's no scrimping on these kinds of things, because every time we do a project like this, we do a lot of environmental enhancements with them. It's not just the infrastructure. Uh, at the north end of the city, you know, we created reptile habitat. We were there and removed all kinds of invasive plants. We created some wetlands and meadows, and planted fifteen hundred new trees. So it's a whole, it's a whole process to improve the valley system as we're there, not just the pathway.
1: It's fantastic to have it, and it's great to know that it is going to keep growing even further. One last thing, Andrew, and that's kind of maintenance of everything because when you agree to put in trail section, you also have to figure out how you're going to maintain it. How has that gone so far?
3: Uh, good question, because that is. Key to it and you know there has to be money set aside to make sure we can look after it so we do we do plow the Temma valley parkway and we do our best to do that in a park system uh, but we don't use salt or sand uh, it's one of those things sand is hugely messy to clean up in the spring and salt we really don't want the salt running into the natural areas off to the pathway so uh, we do our best to keep it as clean as we can in the winter, but, you know, you're in the middle of a park and, you know, half an hour after you plowed it, it can blow in again with snow. So, again, it's not going to be as good as a road or a sidewalk, but we do our best to keep it open all year round.
1: It is amazing to know that it is there and it is growing even further. Andrew, thanks for talking about the latest additions, the bridges that help us to get across the Thames River. Much appreciated. Keep safe.
3: All right. Thanks very much. You too.
1: That's Andrew McPherson, Division Manager of Parks Planning and Operations at the City of London. So next up, Riverbend. If you're out in Riverbend, get ready. I know it's going to be maybe five years or so, but they're going to get you connected. And as Andrew says, the ultimate goal is to get every neighborhood connected so that you can get to where you want to go, get downtown on that trail system. That's outstanding. We've had a lot of talks about privacy and data in the last little while and we're going to continue that conversation right now with our good friend dr thomas cook because there is even more to sink our teeth into dr cook is of course a privacy ethics and internal threat assessment manager at the center for advanced computing and a social sciences and humanities research council of canada postdoctoral fellow at the surveillance studies center both at queen's university dr cook how is monday going
0: Hey, it's great. We had Halloween, and that was a, a nice change of pace, so it's a very good Monday. How was yours?
1: Okay. Uh, mine's going fine. Were you a trick-or-treater, or were you <laughs> handing out to the trick-or-treaters in a, a very socially distanced
0: manner? I was the distributor of happiness in a very socially distanced <laughs> way.
1: Good, good. We had a table out front, and we just kept you know, filling it up with five or six kids that come by. They all took one each. I mean kids today i i was impressed this was
0: good i saw a video on the weekend of a, a family in the u.s that um took advantage of that and they just sort of dumped the bowl into their bags and thought it was kind of funny and cute mm,
1: yeah that too, See, i like, knew there'd be one there's yeah, always one, one. There's, there's always one let's talk about our data privacy because this is something that we're all kind of you know, thinking about at least in terms of hey, where's my information being used? Who's using it? And when we look at data privacy, and and we look at whether or enough, whether or not you would say it's it's enough these days. Where do we sit? Is data privacy enough these days?
0: That's a great question. Uh, no, it's definitely not. Uh, this is a conversation that we have quite regularly, actually. Um, not just at the Center for Advanced Computing, where I work, but also at the Surveillance Studies Center, where I also work. <laughs> it, privacy is something we've been talking about for a long time. We have a lot of different social scientific theories about why privacy still continues to fail. For example, how is it possible that Cambridge Analytic could happen? It in this day and age, really. Is, is our privacy protection mechanisms not strong enough? Is it that the policies are not robust enough? Is the way in which encryption is used out of touch with the reality of how people actually use their devices? And these questions always stay in the same sphere, Mike, and that's a real problem. That sphere is the one that thinks about respecting the rights and the things that an individual would want to keep to themselves without sharing with the rest of the world. And when we think about that sphere then and the relationship that that sphere has to that person... We imagine how protection works within the sphere and at its edges, but never on the outside. Is there a way to think about protecting data or making data more fair in terms of how it's used and how it makes people vulnerable, how it makes people visible beyond the sphere? And if if that could happen, how could we talk about it? And I think that conversation is called data justice. And I think that's what we need to be talking about more in 2020. Okay.
1: Data justice. Right there. At least it gives something that we can put our heads around. You can put your heads around. Okay. Let's, let's do it in a, a just way. So what would you, what would you outline as being, you know, fairness of data? Cause that's maybe where it gets a little bit <laughs> cloudier again. If we can, we can have the, you know, the, the superhero cape kind of attitude. We're going to bring data justice. Okay. Well, how do we do that? I don't know. So. Where do we look in order to start this conversation about data justice?
0: Instead of uh, just giving my own thoughts, I I think a a more effective way is to point towards resources that already exist. Um, Last year, or I believe it was this year, um, a new assistant professor at uh, Western University, uh, Dr. Redden, in the uh, Faculty of Information and Media Studies, Uh, is one of the directors of the Data data Justice Lab, excuse me, and the website is datajusticelab.org. What I love about the website and the initiative, Mike, is that it tries to get people to think about justice in relation to data in the same way that we would think about justice in the everyday world. What does it mean to have justice? If somebody does something that's unfair, if someone commits a criminal act, that hurts somebody, that puts somebody out because it took their money, because it killed a family member, can we apply the same principle of fairness to how data is used, to how data is collected, to how companies make money off of that data, to how those companies share that data endlessly with so many other analytics companies that continue to profit off of it? This is a huge question, isn't it? And I think it's a really good case Companies no. continue to make money off of off of your data all the time, but I don't think anybody in the planet has actually seen the extent of the trail of that data. If somebody's making exponential amounts of money off of how you use your phone, should you not be entitled to some of that money? I think that's just <laughs> one question, right? And I think I, I hope it's a good example for illuminating what is meant here by data justice.
1: We'd all love to share in in that little pot of money. Could you imagine? Well, you own a phone, and instead of just paying to use it and paying to have data on that phone... Uh, guess what? You'll be getting a little bit of that money back. I think we'd all say, where do we sign up? Of course, there'd be a terms of policy thing that we'd fail to re- read and uh, and we'd agree to it. And I'm sure the money would somehow be circumvented somewhere else. But but that's, that's away from the discussion. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Cook, Privacy Ethics and Internal Threat Assessment Manager at the Centre for Advanced Computing and a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada postdoctoral fellow at the Surveillance Studies Centre at Queen's University. So if there was that kind of a responsibility thrust on companies in order to kind of pay attention to how far this data is being used, how many times it's being sold, what kind of an effect do you think that might have?
0: Oh, it would be a disaster. (laughs) It just wouldn't work, Mike. I mean, one of the hard things to even talk to people about privacy is that privacy is very inconvenient. You know, privacy is very, very expensive. In order for privacy to work, companies have to spend money. They need to develop policies. They need to hire people that audit and investigate. They need to allow people to come in to audit and investigate. They need to put very stringent rules over how that is handled to make sure that personal identifiers, for example, are removed from large data sets, especially in a health or medical context. So dat- privacy is always a burden. Privacy is always a lot of work. But it's still not enough, right? This is why we're having the conversation with data justice. So this brings us back around full circle. If data justice could work for a corporation, what would it look like? Well, because privacy doesn't seem to work very often because of the number of follies that we're seeing on a daily basis, maybe that's not the way to proceed. Maybe it's not about positioning corporations to be more accountable, although they absolutely should be, including governments. Maybe it's about developing tools. Maybe it's about developing resources by intermediaries, by social movement groups, by uh, groups like the American Civil Liberties Union. We have groups like this in Canada as well. And what they're doing, and to the complement of the Data Justice Lab, um, headed by Dr. Redden, is that they, they keep lists of harms. Anytime there is a story in the world of somebody who was put out because their privacy was violated, part of the justice is to develop a resource that people can go and visit and use to educate about themselves because that in turn puts pressure more pressure on governments and corporations in new ways so that's one suggestion another might be to start distributing software that we can put on our phones that helps us make corporations and governments more accountable that shows us where the data goes to show how much a certain set of data is actually worth on the phone to who and for what reasons Maybe it's about cultural production. Maybe it's not just economic. Maybe it's about political capital. But if that data has political value, who is getting a benefit from that value, and what is that value worth? If there's a way that these tools can be developed, and there are some examples out there like Protect My Privacy, I think we might have a little bit more insight, and that insight really depends upon transparency and visibility to see where data goes how it's used and how it hurts people. I think that's what we need in order to have a compelling conversation about using data justice effectively
1: you bring up a great word, and that word is transparency. And it comes up a lot in politics, and we've realized very quickly that it doesn't really hold a lot of water when you use it in politics. We're going to be completely transparent, except if we have something going on that we don't want you to know about. And that's typically how it works in politics. How about if if we requested transparency here? Because data can be very transparent. Here it is. In terms of of having that happen, in terms of requesting that and and having it take place how confident will you be that that could take place
0: it's potentially completely breaking a paradigm it's as significant as discovering DNA that's how I would think about it if there is a way in which we can track the movement of data like we can a paper trail with money with finances with economic flow around the globe people will have a direct understanding of the value of data that relates to how many times they drive by a particular McDonald's on a Monday night. It wasn't all that long ago, Mike, that people living above oil reserves tried to have the oil beneath them taken from them. I know lots of people have seen the movie, there will be blood. And this movie comes up for me all the time because people tried really, really hard to cheat and lie to people so that they wouldn't have access to a resource that they should have owned, that they lived directly on top of. And companies went to a great extent to make sure that they could profit off of that resource. But it's still a measurable resource, isn't it? We know exactly the the economic value, if you will, of crude oil. We know exactly the value of crude oil when it turns into petrol or gasoline or diesel or whatever it is that you want to call it. Why can't we do the same for data? And I'm not saying it's all about finances. I'm not saying it's all about economics. But if there is a way to measure value and allow society to assign value to data, we will be making those flows of information legible. And by making them legible, we make people accountable to how it moves. You attach value to the movement of data, we have a completely different reality moving forward.
1: Isn't that wild? What a way to think of it. What a great comparison to DNA. And it took us a long time to figure out that stuff. (laughs) It's taking us a while to figure out the flow of data, but who knows? We might get there one day. Dr. Cook, thank you so much for the latest discussion on this.
0: It's my pleasure. Take care, London. Talk to you soon.
1: That is Dr. Thomas Cook from Queen's University as we talk about data justice and transparency of data and how that might play out and the idea that it isn't easy to do but if someone could ever manage to say okay well here's everywhere that your data has gone then what does a company do when they say, yeah, oh, yeah, we sold it to them, and then we sold it to them, and then we sold it to them, and we profited each and every time. And, oh, yeah, you technically own that? Yeah, but it's, for a long time it's been so hidden you haven't been able to figure out who we've been selling it to. So, yeah, we, we're just kind of doing that. But now now that you can see that, huh, I wonder how we would all behave, and I wonder how companies would wind up behaving.
0: You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.